And the look on people's faces, I remember a woman brought me an article and she was like, this banana cake, the New York Times tells me to come and have a slice of this banana cake. It's Oprah's favorite cake. I don't see it in your case. And I was like, it's right there. It's the one that says banana cake. And she's like, that's not banana cake. And I was like, of course it's banana cake. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Christina Tozzi, chef, TV personality, milk bar CEO, and chief compost cookie maker, and author of the new cookbook, All About Cake. We also have Chef Dan Holtzman later on the show answering one of Matt's burning food questions. Matt, what did you and Christina Tozzi talk about? Christina Tosi has written a book about cake, and it is amazing. It, it is really a cool book. And we talk a lot about cake in this interview that we did live here at Penguin Random House. Um, we talk about yellow cake and how it has this weird artificial flavor that everyone loves. And what is that flavor exactly? We also talk about the digital scale and how everyone really needs to invest in one. What's the difference? What's the difference between just like measuring with a, a cup measure? I think it really means the difference between a good cake and a bad cake. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Precision is essential in pastry and home cooking, and she really dives into that topic. And there is a mug cake recipe in the book, right? Yeah, there's a mug cake recipe. It's like one of the most popular uh, internet recipes of, of our generation, and she really dives into it. We also play that fun schoolyard game, F. Mary Kill. Ooh. Christina decides... Which a classic American cake she wants to F, marry, and kill. I can't wait to find out which cake Christina Tozzi decided to kill. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, you'll have to listen to find out. Here's Matt talking to Christina. So right there. I feel like that one's right there. Um, okay, so I, I see mug cakes all over your, your new book that's coming out in October. But mug cakes aren't cool, right? I mean, like, mug like, cakes were really cool for me when I was like 12, 13, 14, 21, <laughs> 35. Because uh, this is like my late night, if I'm being really honest, this is like my middle of the day or late night go-to. I mean, I'm not like making layer cakes at home for myself no. in the middle of the night when I'm hungry. I am, I mean, I started out as, you know, like... Uh, an almost a tween a teenager yeah, yeah. <laughs> just taking like the box cake mix that was in the pantry I would add like Coca-Cola or Mountain Dew to it because it made Mountain it Dew in pastry it, well it made it even more effervescent right yeah, it makes yeah. all of the leavening agents react even more and then I would warm it in the microwave and that's what this messy beautiful delicious human <laughs> let me clarify when I say it's not cool I think it's cool I, I just think like serious pastry chefs don't think it's cool and then I see it in your book, but then I find out Albert Aldria yeah. is doing a, basically that version. Yeah, if you, I would say maybe five years ago, maybe seven, it hit like the super duper haute cuisine, like fine dining world that this like sponge microwave cake would be made a la minute in the microwave in a deli, little deli container and then would get like, you know, pulled apart very organically and placed beautifully on a plate for your gorgeous dessert at your like 20 course tasting menu. All of which, the world of which I love, <laughs> yeah. but the hilarity, the intersection of <laughs> yeah, yeah. something that only happens late at night in a young girl's microwave yes. hitting that level and being lauded for this super duper fine, thoughtful 
um, pastry technique for yeah. me is like full, the full circle Very part of my story. <laughs> gratifying to you. Yeah. You write about um, the idea of both understanding nostalgia and destroying nostalgia. Is that like, like, what does that mean to you? I think it's really smart and it's kind of what you do at Milk Bar, right? It is. If I had to really sort of strip it down, I'm a very nostalgic person. I'm like the old lady in my family. <laughs> I've always been like an old lady at heart. I am the person that like when hand-me-downs come, they always come through me. If someone is downsizing, yeah. if someone has like an old dresser, it's like give it to Christina. She won't. The family doesn't want to let go of it, but nobody else wants it. I'm a sentimentalist, I suppose. Um, and so nostalgia, I think, is really important. But I also think nostalgia is obnoxious and uh, almost nauseating when it's just leveraged as nostalgia. Or like twee, the idea of like twee. Yeah, yeah. and so my, philo- my very basic philosophy of Milk Bar is to love the apple pie and to love the chocolate chip cookie, but to never ever make an apple pie or a chocolate chip cookie because that's not what right. I believe in. I believe in understanding what is so like magical and transportative about a chocolate chip cookie and an apple pie. Understanding that you already have your favorite apple pie and chocolate chip cookie, mm-hmm. so you don't need me making it, pretending like I'm gonna steal that place in your heart. But instead, to take it, destroy it, basically. Destroy it. <laughs> or I suppose I'm like more thoughtfully, thoughtful pastry terms to deconstruct it. So you basically- And then just, to put it back together. You destroyed the, the wedding cake and like the layer cake, right? And that's, yeah. I mean, you destroyed it. You you decided that you need to be able to see the internal guts of a cake, right? Yeah, I, 10 years ago, yeah. a few months short of 10 years ago, we opened the doors of Milk Bar and I still remember the look on the faces of customers that maybe knew what they were waiting in line for, Maybe not, because, you know, New Yorkers like to queue up for, <laughs> right. for something that seems hot and yeah. underground. And the look on people's faces, I remember a woman brought me an article, and she was like, this banana cake, the New York Times tells me to come and have a slice of this banana cake. It's Oprah's favorite cake. I don't see it in your case. And I was like, it's right there. It's the one that says banana cake. And she's like, that's not banana cake. And I was like, of course it's banana cake. I love, well, I guess I didn't love cake. Mm-mm. Early on, mm-hmm. you I write loved... about that maybe six times in your book yeah. about cake. How you don't love cake? <laughs> no, and it's it's this double-edged sword, right? It's 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 no, it's knowing nostalgia and destroying nostalgia. It's yeah. it is being taught to love cake because cake is this celebratory vehicle that we use on a table for any occasion, and then being taking a step back and being really honest and asking like, how good is cake really? Yeah. Though these cakes that are brought, how good are they really? They're kind of just a flavorless sponge. The frosting is great because it's just like a sugar kick. Um, the frosting is better than great. It right? depends on the frosting. Oh, okay. A grocery store frosting, like the, <laughs> the cake you can get at the grocery store yeah. bakery, sometimes that frosting is out of control delicious because yeah. it has all the ingredients that your yeah. body is not supposed to ingest <laughs> in it. And it goes straight to your brain. You're like, yeah. what is happening? Uh, um, but also such an opportunity. I mean, it, it is the vehicle that we are taught to celebrate and get joy from. And it is a vehicle that no one stops to be like, I'm not, what is I'm not happy about this. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just being sold on the notion that it's delicious and that it's fun and that it's celebratory and that it's worthy of this occasion. And so then I, it's dry, and then everyone's sad. It's so sad. If you don't get the corner piece, you don't oh. get the right, like the right ratio yeah. of frosting to cake. 
And so on the eve of opening Milk Bar, I knew if I was going to open this quirky American-style bakery 10 years ago that I was going to have to come to terms with my yeah. this relationship with cake or the, the lack thereof, this hatred of cake. <laughs> and I think that's just how I approach most things in life and leadership and certainly in the kitchen is when I don't like something, that's yeah. the best thing to dig into most because that is usually the moment if you're being honest with yourself mm -hmm. of well if you don't like it there's probably other people that don't like it or if you don't agree with it yeah. there's probably other people that don't agree with it so do something about it you write about the idea of every cake should have a point of view yeah i mean that's amazing <laughs> the idea of like a, a cake you can't just be a cake you have to have a point of view talk about a few of these cakes that you've written about in the book and talk about what you mean by point of view so Am I stumping you here? No, you're right. I'm just trying to think about where to start. I mean, I think the hilarity of that comment is taken out of context without someone that just basically skipped, like, bunny hopped on stage. <laughs> it would feel like a very serious, yeah. almost um, holier-than-thou approach to cake. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and I so I always kind of laugh at that. But I, I do. I believe firmly in it. I believe in, like, taking yourself seriously when it matters and letting it ride on the rest. But a starting point with resolving this relationship with cake had to be, all right, cake has to have a point of view. Mm -hmm. um, there needs to be a starting place. Cake is this, like, beautiful ar architectural feat. The way that I knew I was going to reinvigorate cake was to give it layers and flavor and texture. And when you have that many opportunities to, like, wow someone's taste buds, you're basically telling them a story of flavor. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have a starting point. Otherwise, like, a story is not a story without a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? So cake mm -hmm. has to have something like that. I got two from the pound cake chapter. These are amazing. Celery root pound cake. Yes. Like, wow. <laughs> wow. Challenge. Like, you're throwing it down. Game on. Game and I on. am the last person you will probably think of as eating vegetables or thinking about yeah. vegetables. <laughs> But this kind of comes back to uh, my mom never really made carrot cake growing up, and yeah. I definitely was not going anywhere near because carrot sounded like a vegetable when it wasn't. Um, but this thought of I love the technique of taking a root vegetable, shredding it down, folding it into a cake batter, and having the right root vegetable infuse moisture because root vegetables have moisture, and so they create steam when they're baking in cakes, and it makes this beautifully moist cake. It gives texture. And it's an incredible, unexpected opportunity for flavor if you're using anything beyond carrot yeah. as a carrot cake. We know carrot cake, but we never, ever look at any other root vegetable in the world and go like, oh, what if I use that in place of carrot? Or most people don't. Um, and I fell in love with celery root. Yeah. Uh, working in fine dining restaurants and eating out, I love that it's like a little earthy, it's a little wild, it has its own innate sweetness in it. Mm. And I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this home. I'm <laughs> it's gonna like bring a whole this wheat, home. use a whole wheat. Yeah, there's whole wheat it, yeah. flour in it. You can you can kind of love riff that. with whatever root vegetable or whatever type of flour you kind of want to pair together. Like you could totally do like caraway flour and red beets, mm -hmm. right? Like that makes sense in terms of how you eat. Um, and then and then slicing it as a pound cake with some celery leaves or some lovage yeah, and some yeah. pickled strawberries and some strawberry whipped cream and so I think strawberries and celery are the two most delicious flavors yeah. paired together and it's taking this the humility of a carrot cake making it even more humble into a pound mm -hmm. cake 
And then also thinking about cake as a piece of toast. Yeah. I got another one, too, from that chapter, banana green curry pound cake. I'm just, like, loving the pound cake chapter. The, I love that you love the pound it's cake. It's a really... So the book... Because they're easy to make. They that's why. are. The they're book really in and of itself, you hear Milk Bar all about cake, and you might go directly to, like, the birthday layer cake. <laughs> that is probably on everyone's Instagram feed, rightfully so. It's not not following the right channels. Yeah. Um, but the, um, the, I wanted to write a cookbook about cake that didn't, that didn't start with where you thought it would start, that started with how we think about food and cooking at Milk Bar. And that starts with the most simple, most humble pound cakes and bunt cakes, things that you just need a bowl and you just need a whisk and some ingredients whisked together to make and to show that, that those two simple pieces of equipment and imagination can deliver the same excitement as a gorgeous layer cake, which, which you're taught to make later in the book. And so banana green curry is one, like too many like late night curries as a cook because that's oftentimes the type of cuisine you can get your hands on at two o'clock in the morning. Traveling the world, loving, I love the way curry can hold sweet, sour, yeah. salty, and spice. Um, I don't put like red chili pepper flakes in all, in all my desserts. I don't really play in spice. But the way it's able to hold a really ripe banana, which anyone that knows has read any of the Milk Bar cookbooks knows how obsessed we are with really ripe bananas. The technique of the ripe banana is Of the ripe banana. It's basically just the brownest brown banana that you would have thrown away long before. That is the secret ingredient for anything deliciously banana. And basically using these two basic ingredients as peasant food, what you could find in a random bodega in New York City, and the amazing aroma and flavor and texture that it makes as a pound cake. You can make it into a layer cake. You can do whatever you want with it. I would prefer, again, to just slice it, toast it in the micro, uh, toast it in the oven, bring it to work as a loaf, put some bre- put some butter on it, some salted butter. We done. So like, clearly, Christina, there's like so much innovation happening in your company between the combos cookies and pound cakes that use curry. So like, let me ask you straight up, like. like how much have you been copied by these big bad food companies? Oh, um, I think plenty. I mean, probably I stopped trying to pay yeah, attention yeah. because there was a part where it's there was a moment where it started hurting my heart, and then there oh. was another moment where um, I live in a few different camps. Right? We would never know how to make apple pie if. Mm-hmm. Whoever came up with apple pie shared it with the world. The reason that we that I wrote Momofuku Milk Bar eight years ago, nine years ago, was because I learned how to bake because I was always raised with the notion that recipes are meant to be shared. They're meant to be yeah. shared. The number of bakeries that own that book and basically just have like Momofiki Mubar in like Wichita, Kansas. I don't know, whatever that is. Um, I just I believe in being inspired, yeah. not being influenced. Other people believe other things. Um, I think the thing that I always try and tell my team is, we know why we do what we do, and we know how we got cereal milk to be just what it is. We tinker with salt levels and sugar Mm -hmm. levels and corn levels and steep times to get it just right. We know the boundaries of it. We know why we landed where we landed, and we will always be the best custodian Mm -hmm. of our own creations. And if we inspire, I, I want to inspire like the next generation and never frost their cake. But with that also comes the fact that Plenty of other people might be overly inspired by Making it. Making that money from your ideas, Making too. That money. But you're doing okay yourself. You've taken on some money yourself, right? Yeah. Private money. Yeah. First time uh, in, well, nine years? when we were nine years old, I decided to stop, take a look around, yeah. 
and realized that growing the business organically, which is what I had done up until that point, that the world was basically changing and moving faster than I was able to create and iterate and innovate and grow my vision. And so I stopped and had a moment and decided to, to do the damn thing and yeah, raise some money. Deal. And it's been an incredible point of leverage. Obviously with finance comes responsibility, but I'm a pretty overly responsible person, even though I'm stuck in like the spirit of a child. Yeah. And it's given <laughs> us opportunity to build our team and make more thoughtful decisions and to not mean that I am wearing 50 hats, mm -hmm. that I can wear the three hats that I love mm -hmm. to wear most and to bring in some pretty incredible individuals to our team to help make Milk Bar even more special. Will there be um, mall kiosks like Dippin' Dots for Milk Bar in the coming future? I think that I would, I would have to be like away in the mountains for <laughs> that to be a thing. I, 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 I kind of like test my appetite. Yeah. I would rather have like super cool saucer vending machines. Yeah. Like I would, I can, I can get down with something like that as long as we're not, when everyone zigs, we zag. That's uh -huh. kind of like my best roadmap. And so, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, so the shopping mall yeah. was the coolest place I could go for inspiration. So I think it would be a matter of finding the way to do it that feels okay, take, most like a reason. I would go to a shopping mall for a milk bar soft I would too. That's why I'm like, you should do it. So like, tell me about food court. Like, you're, like in the, when, you're, when you're growing up, what's in the food court? Where are you going? Going to uh, Cinnabon? Orange. Uh, oh. Cinnabon wasn't in our shopping mall. Oh, Orange, Julius, oh, Otis, hey. Orange Julius. Okay. Oh, yeah. Orange Julius. Shout out. Who is uh, Orange Julius here in the house? Raise your hand. Yeah. Oh my people. God. Yes. Um, Otis Spunkmeyer or <laughs> Mrs. No, Mrs. Fields. It was a Mrs. Yeah. Fields. Oh, um, and it smelled like, you know, like, like curves and turns away, like where the hair cuttery was in the mall, where I would get like my bowl cut. You could smell when the cookies came out of the oven. Yeah. Um, what else? Boardwalk fries. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, Candy Express. I'm, I'm obviously only Is remembering like the places Bulky? I spent my yeah, allowance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like bulk candy. Bulk candy. Um, were you chocolate or were you like... Um, gummies. Gummies? I didn't, I didn't actually develop an appreciation for chocolate until I moved to New York City and went oh. to pastry school and had really good chocolate. Are you but still I was a gummy, a gummy kid, like gummy worms, gummy bears, jelly belly jelly beans, oh. very cherry. Yeah, that was... Je right. Do you eat a lot of jelly beans still? Yeah, well, so when I was in Spain, I forget that I consume a lot of sugar. Uh, <laughs> when I'm home, because it's built yeah. into my world, yeah. when I travel, uh, it throws me off guard. But this ho the hotel that we were staying at across from the beautiful Frank Gehry design, Guggenheim and Bilbao, like two doors down from our hotel, was, a candy, was basically yeah. a mini version of Candy Express. And so I would just go in there every day and shovel gummies into a bag and sweet Eric repair caught me. We had we were at this beautiful, gorgeous oh, restaurant man. tasting menu in the mountains just outside of Bilbao, Basque Country, having this gorgeous lunch. And we had like two hours before we had to go do something else. And so I went to I went yeah. to walk around and then went to the candy store and I'm walking back into the hotel just polishing off the bag of candy and he's sitting in the hotel and I was like oh like he was like what are you doing um I just it just it, it makes me happy yeah let's switch to television because in between um running your ventures you do quite a bit of television and yeah. film all right so let's talk about Master Chef Junior um do those kids make the food 
Are those kids like making them? <laughs> Who do you think makes the food? I don't make the food. Yeah, they make the food. They make it's it? It's pretty incredible. We just wrapped um, the next season, which probably won't hit TV for another few months, mm. of MasterChef Junior. Um, they're incredible. They're 8 to 13 year olds. I enjoyed being a judge on Master Junior for so many reasons. But first and foremost, the most unexpected part of it for me was watching this up and coming generation and understanding how they get their information, where they get it, how they interact with it, how it feeds yeah. them literally yeah. and, and metaphorically. Um, and to understand that these kids are... It's, it's their place. Some of them are the cool kids. Some of them are maybe like the not so cool kids at school. They don't take piano lessons. They maybe don't even, maybe they're not even on a soccer team. They take cooking lessons and they spend their time reading the cookbooks that you yeah. put into the world and watching videos and following everyone on Instagram. Is it Instagram Snap? Is it YouTube? Like it's, it's Instagram. They follow everyone on Instagram. They go to YouTube for like the lessons. That's how they learn to butcher nice. chicken. That's how they... Um, that's how they watch someone decorate a cake with a piping bag with two different colors of frosting mm -hmm. in it and so on. But Instagram is like their, they don't, mm -hmm. I'm, I think they're probably too young to do Snapchat, yeah. but Instagram is like their friendly, familiar thing. Yeah, that's it. true. Um, are and you, they watch a lot of content just online, whatever that, whatever that's through. Are you a tough judge? Are you an easy judge? I, judging I, I like to think of, of myself as firm but fair. <laughs> I have nieces. I um, I like to be around kids. I had grandmas that shaped a lot of who I am. Both of my grandpas, when I was young, they died early. And my grandmas were both the sweetest, most loving humans. But they were not easy. They, were, they would lay it down when it needed to be laid down, <laughs> that law. And so... That's what I do with the kids. I try and develop a relationship with them early on because I've learned that children, they watch us on TV. Yeah. We seem scary. We're taller than them. My hair is like <laughs> never a hair out of place. Like there are some weird things that you need to give them. You need to show them kind of where the line is to mm -hmm. allow them to open themselves up. And then from there, it's being honest with them when they do a great job. Sometimes they also just need a cheerleader of like, yeah. I believe in you. I know you can do better. I always do my best when someone is like, you, I know you can do better. Are Those there are, lots of hugs on set? There are, there are a lot of, later on there are later a lot on. of hugs. Early on there are so many kids that you yeah. need to set the, you need to set the right tone. But once you've set the tone with, with the home cooks that usually have reached like the top 15, mm -hmm there's much more of a relationship because you know them through their food, you see them develop, you get excited for them. They can sense that you're excited for them. They get excited yeah. for each other. What was something that you just had to spin into a napkin because it was just not, <laughs> not great. No. I, in, and this is kind of the hilarity of the MasterChef Junior and the MasterChef sort of camp. I've never done that with a kid. Yeah. I've only ever done it with an adult <laughs> and I remember what it was. Okay. I remember what it was. And I think they probably didn't cut that out on there because <laughs> hashtag drama. Yeah, drama. Um, but I never did that. I'd say like the worst with the kids is that it's bland because they haven't learned yeah. the edges of seasoning and they haven't learned. Balance of acidity and salt. Yeah. Haven't... But I grew up in like with a family, like a farm family in Ohio yeah. and like even boiled chicken, no seasoning. Boiled <laughs> green beans, no seasoning. Yeah. So that is less offensive to me. Let's talk about um, Chef's Table. 
uh, pastry. I love your episode. It's like it's definitely my favorite. They did a great job. Thank they did you. a great job. I just have to ask, like, when you saw the promotion, when you saw the four of your these four faces, and there's three men and you. <laughs> like we're talking about pastry here, traditionally in some circles, there there are many women in in the pastry field. What did you? What was going through your mind, like when? So, there wasn't like a 50-50 balance. No, there wasn't. Well, first things first, they won't tell you who else. Right. The, the most they would tell me is that it was, um, it was a four-part pastry series with four different pastry chefs, one from each country. They wouldn't tell me what other countries. They were just like, we want you to be the American pastry chef. And I have to say, there was a part of me that was like, I'm sensitive to the fact that I'm a female pastry chef because, because working in kitchens on my way up in New York City, it's like if they're really going to tolerate, at least back then, 10, 10, 15 years ago, they were going to tolerate a woman in the kitchen. It was like, fine, okay, fine, you can be here, but like, go be over there in pastry. So for me, I always wanted to, I, was, I love dessert, and so I wasn't going to spike dessert just for that like gender inequality, but I was always fighting to, to make it right on the savory side just to prove that point. So, so in a hilarious way, more than anything, I was offended like, only four episodes of pastry? Yeah, yeah. That's all? Come on. Yeah. There's so many more amazing stories, amazing pastry chefs, man and woman. Um, and from there, I was just honored to be the American pastry chef because I was, I thought, I was worried that they wanted to make an episode that wouldn't be yeah. who we are. We had like cookies and cake factories in New York and DC and Vegas and soon to be LA and uh, we don't have this beautiful, pristine flagship. We're, we have a very democratic approach to dessert beyond that. Like a cookie compared to a gorgeously composed plated dessert, they're two very different things. And we don't apologize for what we do. No. And we certainly wouldn't ask a fancier, a more fancily presented dessert to make apologies. But they understood it. I think the one thing that David Gell, the creator of Chef's Table, said afterwards to me because I was like what yo son that's not cool and he's like honestly we did it in in the most beautiful way they didn't even realize they had the responsibility oh the, that uh, they, they didn't had. realize that the responsibility to well represent... sorry they didn't realize that they had um not the responsibility that wasn't the right yeah, word. sorry they didn't realize that they had that kind of impact that people mm-hmm. were that that people were looking to them as the trendsetter that people that that it resonated so much the decisions they made such a big difference in the way that we see and interact with and yeah. take on the food industry you're, and, and David, what they have planned afterwards David's, is pretty David's awesome. a lovely person and you're defending him beautifully but the blogs went effing crazy when yeah, he was they like did. is the only woman here what the f yeah I mean, so you, you think in the future, because they must be doing future episodes of Pastry because it was such a success. Are they yeah, I mean, and beyond balance? that, just like the way they're thinking about how they curate the chefs that they choose and who they're bringing on the, their team to do the research and show on. Um, I think the most we can do in this space of like the man and woman conversation, at least my point of view, is I'm always going to be there to be the change and to mm-hmm. do the work. That's what I do for like the TV and whatever that I do, none of that really matters. It's it's what it's for and the work that it does. Yeah. Being a judge in front of these kids, some of these young girls have never seen a woman of authority be that. And so I'm gonna do everything I can to do the work and to be the change. And yeah. I think from there, we can't be afraid to have a conversation about 
opinion, but we have to be respectful in the fact that people are going to still make mistakes. We can't expect that people are going to be perfect, but we have to approach the conversation with enough room to say, hey, in the same way as we judge the kids, like, you, hey, you did an okay job, but yeah. you can do better. You can do better. And letting them say, you, you're so right. I didn't think about it. Yeah. My bad. I can do better and I will do and better. And Chang felt a little bit of heat too for his show, Ugly Delicious, yeah. because he wasn't balancing race. I mean, yes. Yeah. So let's talk more about the book because yeah, I really I, I want to talk about cake because you make this stance like Pillsbury yellow cake is the one. Mm. It's like your mm. one. Well, your that guy. is the yellow cake mix that I think tastes the most delicious. Okay. And I've tested all of them. In the book, we're not like, oh, here's a book all about cake. Open a box of cake. Ask me some oil, some water, you're a star. Three hundred We use um, we use yellow cake mix every once in a while for um, for flavor. The flavor of yellow cake that most American palates know um, is completely manufactured. I'm pretty sure it was born from a flavor manufacturer in Ohio called Givadon. And it's delicious, but it's a completely manufactured flavor. So it would be the difference of like a chocolate, a brownie cake mix, like the degrees of cocoa powder someone's using or what have you. But we use it as a flavor enhancer um, in certain recipes. There's a pineapple upside down cake, which as you can imagine is not really a pineapple upside down cake. It's all of the layers and it's nostalgia and then destroying nostalgia. But one of the layers is textural and it's yellow cake crumbs. And so you're taking this yellow cake mix and, and mixing it with unsalted butter and a few other things to make it crumbly and sandy and then toasting it in the oven. And there's another part of it that is yellow cake frosting. Oh. Because why do we have to? What? Why does only cake taste like cake? You know, that doesn't make any sense. And so we test it out. Inevitably, we take, like, the sourcing part of it seriously. We don't write yeah. cookbooks to, like, tee up a recipe that is not anything but the exact recipe that we make in our kitchen. It leaves us vulnerable, but at the same time, it's what I believe in as a chef. And so we went through the whole rigmarole of, okay, well, what if someone chooses this yellow cake mix? Is it going to make the same delicious yellow cake frosting? And the answer is no. So I love that you have uh, broken the recipes into both weight and volume. So you're... Tell us about like the digital scale. Like, why should every? I always like, why should everyone buy a digital scale? Like, come on. This is a great example of take yourself seriously when it matters, Uh and then every other time, like, I don't care what a mess you make in your kitchen. You should make a mess. It's your kitchen. We have. If it were up to me, all and you would all probably be like, that's this is why you need a great publisher. (laughs) (laughs) If it were up to me, all of our cookbooks would just be in grams. They wouldn't mm-hmm. be in volumetric measurements, which we so are. So the the cookbook isn't even in weight pounds and ounces; it's in weight grams. Yeah. So um, if and if it were up to me, and this is coming from someone that like learned how to bake with the same yellow mm-hmm. plastic scoops that my great grandma did, yeah, exactly. at the top, yeah. Um, we call those freedom measurements because <laughs> when you start scooping cups of flour and stuff like that the reality is you're never gonna get anywhere as accurate as if you measure it with a scale to the gram um you can get a scale for 20 dollars now it's so simple but that accuracy in baking as you can tell we are very into like beyond baking empowerment do you but if you want your cake to your chocolate chip layer cake to turn out 
the way ours does to a T, the only way I can guarantee you that is if you measure with grams. And like 61 grams, too. Like they're not round This numbers. is always like the <laughs> tense moment yeah. of like it does not look cute on print, in print when it says 61 grams. But, but it's 61 but grams, out, okay, and like, I'm here to be real. But serious, <laughs> shout out to Francis, Doris, Clarkson, yes. Potter for yes. putting both. Yes. I just like... They, like, it's like so they, true. Not many books uh, do that. They, they don't. Both. They are my heroes and heroines because of it. Yeah. Um, they put up with those moments of understanding and giving me the space to celebrate those things that I believe in, even when they're a little strange. And then also making sure that it's a book for the people, because we're here for the people. Um, and that is, that, that's the biggest, funniest thing. But $20, it's the best investment. We always try and find a way to like bundle the scale with the book. Because Why don't you do your own? Why don't I you? know. Does anyone know a scale company that wants to make it? <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> but that is true, and anyone that wants to talk about why a cup of flour isn't a cup of flour is a cup of flour, I will TMI. There, there's maybe. definitely some debate there. Let's play this game, F. Mary Kill. That's yes. music explicitive, <laughs> F. Mary Kill. F. Mary Kill. F. Mary Kill, red velvet cake, carrot cake, molten chocolate cake. F. Mary Kill. F. Molten lava cake. Yeah. <laughs> right? I know. This is like my mom, like, Christine, I can't believe you did that. You did there. You went there. Mary carrot cake. Oh, why? Okay. This is a, light, a long, lovely life. I mean, the, the celery root pound cake. Like, it's all of the, it's all of the things. You can 100% eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You want it in every part of it. It is your life partner. It is an LP. <laughs> it's not just the cake, though. It's the frosting. It's the cream cheese 100% frosting. 100% is the cream cheese frosting, too. And then kill red velvet. Oh man, thank you. Can we get a round of applause for killing, <laughs> killing Red Velvet Cake? It is the most overrated. I mean, I get it, but it's chocolate cake with vinegar and red food coloring, and some people don't even know that that's how you do it. <laughs> it's just. It's... Plus, you got the cream cheese frosting on the carrot cake already, so what are we all doing? Get rid of it! I love this. Thank you for the conversation. Let's give a round of applause for Christina Tosi, guys. Thank you. Here's chef Dan Holtzman answering one of Matt's burning food questions. Dan Holtzman, we read a column together called 100 Questions for My Friend the Chef. You are my friend the chef, brother. I'm a chef. I'm your friend. I am your brother. (laughs) From another. Okay, I got a question for you. Neapolitan-style pizza, I love it. What is it? Okay, so Neapolitan-style pizza is pizza made in the style of Naples, um, the fertile crescent of pizza, just possibly, although probably pizza came from China because it seems like everything great starts in China somehow. Neapolitan pizza it actually is controlled by like one of those DOC, Denominacion Originata, Controllata, Gratinata, whatever the Italian term that basically says the government stepped in and said, hey, fools, this is a very specific way of cooking pizza and we want to protect it. And we actually have pizzaiolas and you can get a certificate that says you are a pizzaiola. There are certain rules involved, like the size of the pizza, how long it can cook for, 90 seconds in the oven, um, double zero flour. It needs the, the tomato sauce is not cooked. You just take uh, canned tomatoes, handful of salt, give them a squeeze. Obviously, it needs to have mozzarella, 
Not necessarily the buffalo. buffalo. Not necessarily the buffalo, which means you've someone's actually gone out and milk. Have you ever seen a buffalo? They're fucking huge. They're like eight thousand pounds. I don't feel comfortable milking no. a buffalo. They're mean. No, 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 no. I got a question though. I I love the pizza. I love the sauce. As you said, it's a very light raw sauce. I like the toppings, like the the really like dots of mozzarella. Mm-hmm. But my favorite part about the mon- about the pizza is the leoparding of the crust. Oh, God, the crust. That crust is my favorite. The elasticity. And then you flip it over and it looks like a leopard. The leoparding. I love that word leoparding. Tell me, how do you do that? Leprosy and leoparding have nothing to do with one another. I just want to throw that out there. So here's the deal. Uh, Neapolitan pizza, you take um, uh, dry active yeast, you mix it with uh, double zero flour and water um, and salt and you let it ferment overnight right um, and the the 24 hour fermentation process gives it that like bubbly acidic almost like sourdoughy flavor and it also makes the dough very elastic and gives it that kind of like it's not a crispy crust pizza right so that's the first piece of the puzzle. And then it's a super hot oven, so there's no sugar in the dough. When you see golden brown crust, it means that there was some sort of a sweetener or sugar that was caramelizing, caramelizing the sugar. In this case, what's going on is literally you're burning the flour in, in places, but because there's a very low sugar content, the char or burned flavor isn't bitter but actually adds like a certain smoky. It's like a smoke. It's it, it. It doesn't have bitter. It's like this accent that you just is so addictive about the pizza. And actually, when you make it, basically, you you put it on the in a wood fired oven, very hot, thousand degrees. You you crisp up the bottom on the on the stone, and then you pick it up. You throw a handful of of uh, wood chips in there to create a flame, and then you pick the pizza up to the very top where it's super duper hot, and you burn the crust. My question is, can you do this at home in a standard oven that goes up to like 500, but it goes like 650? Not only can you do it, but I would suggest you do it right away. I don't think it would be considered like DOP, you know. Getting you a word from the Pope or something. You, no. The Pope would not. Well, you never know. <laughs> never. What, I would, what I would say is, first and foremost, pizza stones are great, but a, a, a pizza steel, a metal pizza stone, a thick piece of steel, because steel actually... Um, has a higher specific heat number, which scientifically means that it transfers the heat faster to the pie. So you get that crispy crust and it'll cook faster and then do it with the broiler. So oven all the way up to like 550 degrees with a piece of steel in there, preheat it for like 35 minutes till it's smoking hot, turn the broiler on, throw the pizza on the stone uh, or the steel rather, cook the bottom and then lift it all the way up and cook the top under the broiler. For like 90 seconds. You know, the reality is you should cook it until it's done. Whatever your broiler does. A lot of people have, you know, decent broilers Mm -hmm. at best. Dan Holzman, thank you so much. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.